0: Welcome to this episode of the Petri Dish Podcast. I'm Rachel. I'm Sabria, and I'm Lindsay. So before we got started, get started on
1: today's recording, I just wanted to touch base with everyone and say how excited we are that we are actually live mm-hmm. and we put our podcast out there for everyone to listen to on the internet. We're real. <laughs> <laughs> and also, we just wanted to mention that we are launching a Facebook page. So. Um, when this recording is up and running, we're going to do this via our Facebook page as well as our Tumblr. And we hope that you guys will like our Facebook page and also follow us there.
2: Like us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that's just exciting news on the podcast development front. Yeah. But
0: as for today, we are going to be talking about brains and memory. So what are we talking about this week? I can't remember guys. Well, that's because there's something wrong with your memory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> many <laughs> <things>. <laughs>
0: Um So this week we're going to talk about um, how memories are made. You know, this is a really interesting topic for a number of people. You can tell that because there's so many movies yes. that have been made around this topic. You know, you have... Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where people are trying to get memories out of their brain because they're too painful to deal with. You know, most people can relate to that. You have 50 First Dates, Mm -hmm. the comedy version. Uh, Inception, you know, being able to get into someone's brain and change things around. Um, So this is something that people have been fascinated by for a really long time, um, and it's sort of been in the realm of science fiction, but we're here to tell you a little bit about some research that's been happening that's um, almost as cool, let's say as cool, it's real. (laughs) Um, And and so we're going to talk a little bit about how memories are made, we're going to talk about how people are studying memory, like what kind of tools they're using, and um, even a little bit about how false memories can be made um, in the brain, and get into some of the uh, recent cutting edge neuroscience research there,
1: so I guess we can talk about what is the brain. The brain is made up of hundreds of billions of cells, and these cells are called neurons, so brain cells equals neurons
0: i mean there's a whole bunch of different uh, Kinds brain of cells mm-hmm. out there, but the the sort of the signaling that we're talking about that's being transmitted from one cell to another we're talking about about neurons and there's a whole bunch of supporting cells out there there's um, glia cells. There's mm-hmm. there's a number of things happening in the brain, so we're gonna we're gonna break it down in a sort of simpler mm-hmm. form today. But
2: just think about we're talking about cells that send signals to other cells, right? And so you can imagine that. With something as complex as the brain, it's how you know how our memories formed. What is the process? And so it's actually broken down into three stages. Um, uh, the first stage is encoding, uh, which is where the information from the outside world reaches our senses um, in the form of stimuli, whether it be chemical or physical, and that's how the brain processes it. The second stage is storing the storing said memory, uh, which is where you maintain that information over long periods of time, and that's also how the memory is created. Right, so you see something your brain processes it. It stores it. It creates it. It's a memory. It's, it's in there. And then the third, um, stage of processing the memory is the retrieval. So, right. It's like, it's locating that memory. It's locating that information and returning it to our conscious. And so what I had said earlier to you guys, uh, and talking is that I've always felt like, you know, the memory is like this Rolodex or this file cabinet where, you know, you create this memory. And then if someone says, Hey, do you remember this night? Or, Hey, do you remember when I wore this outfit? It's like, You know, I just kind of imagine the brain (laughs) shuffling through, through through and it's like, "Uh, do I remember this? And obviously for some things, you know, it takes a little longer than others. For me, it's a very
1: abstract concept to realize that you can recall these memories so vividly, but in the brain, in the cells, they're just chemical signals. Right. It's like, it's like connection um, is
2: ones and zeros in technology, (laughs) (laughs)
0: which I do not understand either. So how do we know all these different things about um, how memory works? You know, a lot of neuroscience um, in the past has been done by taking out different chunks of the brain in animals or actually also in humans, you know, lobotomies were a popular tool oh. at one point in history. Yes. Um, so, um, so one really famous patient that uh, we learned a lot from, it's kind of a sad story, but, you know, ended up being really um, sort of a little silver lining because of what he contributed to our, our knowledge of memory research. Um, this man named Henry Melison, um, he, in the 1950s, had these really debilitating seizures, and it was so bad that he was pretty much willing to try whatever, some really experimental surgery because like, he couldn't live his life. He couldn't leave the house. It was very, very bad. So they decided that if they took out a part of his brain called the hippocampus um, on both sides, bilateral, Um, that that would help his seizures, and it did. Unfortunately, (laughs) he also lost his ability to form new memories. Um, So he still retained memories of his childhood. He could still talk about things that had happened to him far in the past, but things that had happened to him in recent times, not so much, and anything that was current. So you know, he could remember what you just said to him a few seconds ago, but he couldn't remember what he had lunch had for lunch a few hours ago. Um, and I think the good example that they also quoted was you could teach him a
1: skill and he could perform the skill, but he
0: didn't remember learning the skill. Right, so so this is a really important um, point about memory, and you know we've sort of alluded to it already is you know there's a lot of different facets to memory. Mm-hmm. We have short term memory, we have long- term memory, we have recall, and then we also have different parts of the brain that correspond to different types of learning. so you have motor skills, yep. mm-hmm. you have remembering what actually happened to you, you have things like remembering where you are, which is like context-dependent memory, which we're going to talk a little bit about more later. And I think the interplay between the different parts of your brain and how that
1: relates to all the different types of memories and how you, the different skill sets that you have is a very complex network of cells and locations in the brain.
0: Right. So, you know, we know like what, we have an idea of what sections of the brain correspond to different things because if you take it out of an animal and then the animal can't, um, you know, perform a task that demonstrates memory. You can you can learn something from that. And we can also do MRI. You can do MRI, obviously, on humans. We all know that. You can also do that on mice and rats. Um, <laughs> so MRIs. there's been a lot of research in, in these kind of areas, in neuroscience. Um, but a lot of it actually has come from, from human studies. But unfortunately, we didn't know what, the real detail of what was missing in, um, in these patients until they were dead
1: yeah so i guess a good question to start with is traditionally how is neurobiology done and what types of tools are out there to really assess how
2: memories are formed and how your brain the interplay between the different parts of your brain will result in and so just to continue with what rachel was saying there are many ways that we can study the brain. Um, She mentioned MRIs. She also mentioned looking at brain slices. And while all these techniques are very useful, it makes it hard to dissect the populations of neurons that play a role in the formation of a single memory in a living animal.
1: And I think along exactly along what you're saying is also on the time scale that it's happening. So milliseconds and just really quick interactions between cells and cells, it's really hard to actually dissect that. And there has to be tools in order, tools developed in order to ask these questions and answer these questions. So what we're going to be talking about is the main topic of today's podcast is a study that was done. And they are using what's called optogenetics. And just to back up and give a little bit of historical perspective of what optogenetics are and where it comes from and the basic parts of it... Um, it starts with actually a funny story about pond algae. So in order for these these organisms to live, they need to move towards sunlight. So they need to have photosynthesis to survive, and in order to do that, they need sunlight. And in order for them to find where the sunlight is while they're swimming in pond water, they have this part of them that's called the eye spot. And That's what's a it- fun word. <laughs> I think it's like their little eye, but... Algae are really small, so they don't really have <laughs> eyes. Um, but within the eye spot, there's actually these proteins that can respond to the light. And these proteins are called channel rhodopsins. And when they are hit by blue light, and this will be important to some subsequent discussions that we're talking about when we talk about the actual paper that we want to talk about. Um, when they respond to light, the channel opens. And this channel opens, and then certain ions can go through. And not, then downstream, this ha- allows them to swim in the proper direction. Um, but what is important to the mouse studies that we want to talk about is that they've taken this particular particular gene, the channel rhodopsin, and they can put this and express it in neurons. So now the neurons in the mouse brains can now have ch- these channels that can open in response to light. And so there are two different types of these channels. So the one that they're talking about in the paper we will get to momentarily is that it's an on switch. So when, the, when light is shined on these switches they will open and it will turn something on. Whereas there are also alternative options um, where it can do the opposite, in which when the light is shined on them, they will actually shut off. So basically with that main point, it's just important to know that you can transfer this gene that comes from initially this algae that responds to light into these um, mouse cells in mm-hmm. the brain, and they can actually be responsive to a cue, which actually corresponds to light, like a light that
0: can be shined on these cells. So, what are we talking about here? So, opto, light, right? Yep. And then genetics. So, it's
1: combining light with genetics. Mm -hmm. So, putting this gene into the neurons that can respond to the light.
2: Pretty neat stuff. Right. And so, it actually, optogenetics, as Rachel and Lindsay both pointed out, it's just a combination of optics and genetics. um, And they use it to control the activity of individual neurons Mm -hmm. in living tissue. And it was the... 2010 method of the year in nature and the breakthrough of the decade in science. Um, And just in a very simplistic way, you need two things um, for optogenetics to work. Um, You need a genetic targeting strategy, which means you need to be able to to sell specific promoters. And what that does is it targets, or the the promoter is packaged into a virus. It it basically gets you... So you have a set of cells
1: that you want to look at. Right. And so you can direct this particular protein or to, this the cells, right. to the cells
2: that you want to look at. Right. And so this allows you to deliver the light to whatever cells that, and, and and activate whatever cell population you want. Mm-hmm. The second thing that you need is some sort of hardware. And so um, it usually is like a little cap. I don't I so always So it's kind of funny <laughs> when
1: they describe, we can get a little bit more into this when we get into the actual meat of the paper, but... They actually, in the methods, describe what they're doing, and they're doing a surgery on the mice that are now expressing this on-off switch, basically, in the specific cells that they want to look at, and it's, they kind of li- make it look like a little hat. It, it is a little, yeah.
2: It's essentially <laughs> so they, like a and hat.
1: they inject, they basically... They have to drill
2: it into the... They mm-hmm.
1: will do brain surgery on the mice where they can inter- inject um, a way that the light can actually be shined on the actual cells.
0: So they have laser beams... Attached to their heads.
2: Yes. Just to be clear, <laughs> that, yeah. wanted to make sure that was <laughs> my sound effect, for lasers guys.
0: I appreciate that. So really cool tool, right? Um, and this can be used for a whole bunch of different things that we're not really going to get into in too much detail today. But uh, one one thing that we really wanted to talk about today were um, these really cool studies that were done. Um, in the Tanagawa Lab at MIT. And just as a little aside, um, this guy won a Nobel Prize in the 80s for an immunology-related topic and is now doing really awesome neuroscience research. So, like, really, one person should just not be that smart. But, <laughs> well, and uh, gave a really awesome TED Talk. Yeah, So. Oh, student. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a really great group going. And um, a couple of uh, the people in the lab, the, the lead authors on this study, gave a really awesome TED Talk, and we'll have the link to that up on the blog, and you should definitely check it out. It is fantastic and they do a great job of breaking everything down. The question that they were asking, which is a really fundamental one, is, you know, if we are taking this mouse and this mouse is creating a new memory, you know, say we put it in a box, which is what they did. <laughs> and the box and the mouse is remembering the box, which neurons is it using to make that memory? This is something that without this kind of technique, it would be very difficult to identify. We know we've known specific regions of the brain, as we've mentioned, but not specific cells. And what they call that is a memory trace. So you have different cells that are um, signaling to each other in a specific part of the brain when the mouse is making a memory. So, for instance, if you have blue box, if you put mouse in blue box,
1: the mouse is exploring the box, the mouse is now forming memories. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So then these neurons are active, and they can right. see which ones are active.
0: So what's difficult is we have mice in a box. How do we know <laughs> what they remember? Mm-hmm. Um, so what they do with these kind of studies is you have to have some kind of behavioral test because obviously you can't, they don't answer questions. I mean, you can't talk them about it. They don't cooperate. You know, so, um, <laughs> so what they did is they actually tried to figure out if the mice were scared or not. And to make, you know, first they had to, make them afraid of something and then they have a test to show what they act like when they're scared so what they do is if they give them little foot shocks um, just to sort of zap them nothing nothing too deadly or serious um, in a box they freeze because you know kind of a deer in the headlights you know you don't know where to go what to do something scary happens so you freeze so, so people, I mean so
2: normally what they're just kind of roaming around. Right, and one of the points that he made, um, Steve Ramirez made in his TED Talk, for anyone who's worked with mice, um, which I think two of us have I in do this not room. Mice, <laughs> I will mice generally, he says, are very curious creatures. You know, they walk around their cage, they sniff things, they climb on things, but when you put them in this... Um, position to be scared they don't move they just freeze because mm-hmm. they don't want to be seen they're just like if no one sees it's just me, like their then, innate behavior right exactly and so that's how they measure for mice anyway their response if they're scared which right. is freezing
0: so to be able to track this this memory they had to do something that they could measure so they put them in the box they gave them a little foot shock so they would be scared and they knew that they froze and while this was happening this labeling that we were talking about, these light switches were being installed in the mouse's brain, right? Um, And then what they did is they found out that if they took that mouse and then just shone a light into the brain using these installed optic cables, um, they could make the mouse freeze again as if it was experiencing that exact same stimulus again when it actually wasn't. Just to recap, what they're doing is... They're not, they're not shocking the
1: mice, but by shining the laser and turning on the light switch, the, mouse, the mice are reacting, and mm-hmm. they're reacting by freezing. So they're not being shocked, but they're still
2: freezing. They're still feeling like they're being shocked. And so then the second question that they wanted to know was, can we take this memory and make a false memory into the mice?
0: Since they already have this really great system set up, they used a really similar type of experiment so you have your mice and your boxes again so let's say this time they start off in a red box and they're just experiencing the red box and their brain is they're getting their light switches uh installed <laughs> and then they put them into another box let's say the gray box and in the gray box they turn the light on so they're turning on the memory of the red box and then also shocking them at the same time So they're having two things going on in their brain in in this box at the same time. And that's really important because when they go back into the red box, they already have their old memories from the red box, which were fine before. But now, since they have been scared at the same time that they're remembering that red box, they are now afraid of the red box. So it's kind of like more of an association Mm -hmm. between the fear and what they thought they were seeing during that fear so even though they weren't. They in that were box. yeah,
1: cuz they were never shocked in the red box. But then they turned the light switch on that made them remember
0: the red box while they were shocking them. Right. So it's a completely false connection. They were they never they never had those two memories connected in real life, but in the brain when they actually made the memory now they're connected because they have this tool where they can turn things on and off. In different contexts, so it would be similar to say, okay, you go to the grocery store. You're doing your shopping. Let's say that you have an enjoyable time at the grocery store, or at least a neutral one. <laughs> There's no long statement. lines. Yeah, no <laughs> children crying. Yes. Just doing what you got to do. You're okay. It's it's a completely neutral memory, <laughs> and then you go. You know, and meanwhile, unbeknownst to you, someone is putting little light switches in your brain. Let's just say. <laughs> don't get scared, this is not possible. <laughs> but, um, th- then you go to the bank, okay, and somebody is turning on these light switches in your brain. So your brain is making little connections that you don't even know about. And something scares you. Let's say. There's like you know, a bank robbery. Yeah, there's a bank robbery, fine. You know, something that creates a fear in you. But your memory of the grocery store is like turned Way on falsely in your head. So the next time you go to the grocery store, you're like, ah, I'm being robbed at the post office, but I'm in front of the tomatoes. Yes. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> so your context is totally messed up in connection to your memory experience. You know, what what memory you're feeling. And I think what's what's one thing to point out about this is, you know, we're talking about a memory in terms of a fear response. So, you know, we don't know what the mice
2: I think. i
1: think it's yeah I, th- I think what you're getting at is i think it's hard for us as humans because we have internal dialogue and we can be, we can project like what we think the mice are feeling like oh this shock means hurt whereas we have no idea how the mouse will um process that mm-hmm. obviously right. we can connect the shock to a freezing response but the mouse isn't as a as developed as humans are, and it's not having this internal dialogue where it's associating, I am being shocked. It's just, it happens, there's a response. Right.
0: right. And, I mean, t- to be real, we don't really actually know what the, no. mouse, the mice are thinking. Um, and all we can go on is what they're um, what they saying. So this isn't a false memory, like, inception, like somebody is going into your brain and, and actually <laughs> implanting, <laughs> implanting a This complex mm-hmm. situation with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, <laughs> and, you know. Who knows what's going on in there, but... Um, this is more just making a connection between two different things that shouldn't have been connected in real life. They never really happened at the same time. Right. But I th- I th-
1: I think the fundamental of the tool is the fact that you're able to monitor this. You're able to look at an individual neuron. An individual neuron. You're population. able to activate it, you're able to see the response, and you're able it's a very powerful tool in tort in terms of understanding the connections of how memories are formed in an individual cell. Which is something that we've never been able to do before. And I, I think that also brings us to the point of there's a lot of hype in the media and, oh my goodness, you can implant false memories in mice, but can you do this in humans? And I think that that is something that we should probably discuss in a little, in a little bit um, in the end of the podcast and just talking about how really is this... Exactly ready for primetime in humans, and my feeling is no. I think that it's an excellent tool for being able to understand that what's going on in the brain, and then by better understanding what's going on in the brain, you can then translate that into what happens in disease states. And by sure. understanding what's really going on mm-hmm. in the normal context.
2: Yeah, I mean a lot of the um, op-ed pieces that have come out. I don't know, not necessarily in defense, not in defense, but, like, against optogenetics is that, you know, there's so much hype surrounding it because, you know, it's like, ooh, lasers, memory control, living animals. Can we do this in humans? Right. And, you know, I think that it's more of like they don't want to oversell the promise of optogenetics Mm -hmm. because it's still this really, I mean, even though it is a very basic tool, Mm -hmm. um, we still don't really know the promise of it yet. We, you know lots of labs have been using it Mm -hmm. um but you know some people were saying that oh there's these you know trends or fads in science where it's like whatever the next new thing is everyone jumps on board and it's like how can I implement this into my project how can I use this when in theory maybe it's not the best thing for your project I mean I think it
1: just comes back: is it going to
2: answer a question
1: that you're actually asking and I and I think that Although it's great to see how science will connect to curing a human disease, I don't think
2: that science is – it can't always be done right. for just that purpose. Well, and one of the things that they—that wha- someone brought up, and I can't remember which um, article it was that I was reading, but they were saying that how can you use, for example, optogenetics to study Alzheimer's when we're not even 100% sure what causes Alzheimer's to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I almost feel like it's this um, – circle of, you know, people are like, well, you know, we can use optogenetics to study al- Alzheimer's. Um, and then someone's like, oh, but we don't even know what causes Alzheimer's. And someone's like, right, but we could use optogenetics to figure out which neurons are are um, correlated to Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or whatever, you know, neurological disease you want right. to put in.
0: I mean, it's very difficult to cure something if you don't know why it's happening right. in the first place. So this is really important for that. I mean, there is definitely some argument to be made that you know techniques that allow us to look at different traces of neurons firing in the brain could potentially be translated to human mm-hmm. disease but we are so far from that right now i mean first of all in in this case you would have to to turn on a memory in the wrong situation in the case that we're talking about you would have to be already having things implanted in your brain while the memory is happening and it's it's not going to be translatable to human exactly as it is right now. But what we learned from it and also, you know, way, ideas of how we can manipulate the brain, which is a really difficult area to target because of the blood-brain barrier,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, it, is, it is really interesting to think about how we can use sort of these concepts to design um, therapies. Once we know more about what's going on in the brain, it's still kind of a black
2: box. Mm-hmm. I mean the and other thing, so complex. Well it's not only is it like so complex, but to even think that at some point in the future we're gonna be hardwiring, you know, fiber optic lights to people's mm-hmm. heads. I mean it's just so <laughs> Yeah. I mean no, that's like science fiction to me. Yeah you know no. I mean and I can't imagine
0: there are some people working with similar techniques where they are um, turning on these switches using uh, chemicals instead of light, and that is a little bit more realistic in that case. But again, which neurons are we turning on or off? And why? Yeah, I think in that we case... We need to decide yeah. more. You know, we need more information to be able to use it for anything. And I mean, I think in that case
1: also it brings us back to why the optogenetics is so a great tool in terms of understanding is because you have that time resolution. Whereas if you're treating someone with drugs, it's not this instant light Mm -hmm. that you can turn on and off. It's you need to metabolize the drug. It needs to travel to the brain. And really at that point, there's a little bit less known about the timing of things and which cells are on in this particular memory and really recalling that and going back to identifying an individual neuron and their interactions becomes more
2: complex. Mm -hmm. So, if any of this stuff was interesting to you, we highly, highly recommend that you watch this TED Talk. They do a really great job. It's only, I think, 15 minutes. Um, The two speakers are both incredibly engaging, and they do a really good job of, um, you know, what we were doing here, which was breaking down the experiments. And they even have, like, videos of the mice freezing Mm -hmm. and their thought process. And, I mean, they have a really great analogy with, like, freezing when you see an ex-girlfriend. Yeah, which I feel like most people can relate to <laughs> as far as you know maybe wanting to erase memories of traumatic experiences such as that and even though we spoke about um turning on mm-hmm. or, or essentially implementing false memories there are labs out there that are also working on yep. turning off memories and possibly like can you erase You know, certain bad outfits you wear. I don't know. (laughs) I mean,
1: just very briefly, there's um, a lot of research into turning off cells in terms of epilepsy. So, using the opposite switch, so instead of an on switch, using an off switch to prevent um, neurons from being active and then then having an epileptic response. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot. I have to say, there's a lot of research that use optogenetics, and they use it for many different different questions that they want to ask. This is just one group's um, approach, and I think that it's just a good window into the possibility of what you could do with it. Mm -hmm. I think the options are endless.
2: So we really hoped you enjoyed hearing all about memory, brains, mice, new tools. Lasers. Lasers. Um, so don't forget to like us on Facebook now that we have a new Facebook page. And if you have any questions or comments or anything you'd like to let us know about this episode, please email us at dish Podcast at gmail.com. And you can find this podcast on our Tumblr as well at thepetridishpodcast.tumblr.com.